0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2008.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
1: Today we welcome the playwright Lanford Wilson starting back in 1965 first production of bomb and Gilead. along the way many 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 plays including lemon sky the hot l baltimore what is referred to as the tally trilogy starting with fifth of july followed by tally's folly and tally and son incidentally for tally's folly lanford wilson was awarded the pulitzer prize for drama another show Uh, We'll be talking about his Burn This. We'll be talking to Lanford about being one of the founders of Circle Rep here in New York, about his current production at the McCarter Theater in Princeton of Tally's Folly and the upcoming uh, production at Juilliard School here in New York of Burn This coming up in mid-November and also later Book of Days and Mound Builders all coming up at uh, Juilliard. Lanford, welcome to Downstage Center.
2: Thank you very much.
1: I guess the place to start is your current production, which is uh, currently being produced in Princeton of uh, Tally's Folly at the McCarter. You are very actively involved with that, and you are also actively involved with the uh, revival of Burn This at Juilliard. How does it feel to be currently involved with doing uh, revivals of your earlier work?
2: It feels a little strange, but, but it, it's fine. Uh, they're, they're, I'm, I'm more involved with. Uh, the mound Builders and Book of Days. At Juilliard. At mm-hmm. Juilliard, the third year's uh, students are doing that. I haven't seen Burn This yet. I've, I've met their cast, but I haven't seen, they've just started rehearsals. They they were about uh three weeks behind the other the other uh, uh class and uh and good lord are they talented. I mean, I was I was very pleasantly surprised at at the quality of the actors there. They're really wonderful. So yes, I, I am involved in that a little bit. As soon as I leave here, I go to Book of Days rehearsal, and I think they start performances very soon tomorrow, next day, something like that.
1: And also, Tally's Folly at MacArthur. Oh
2: well, I've been I've been yeah. there a lot. Princeton. It's it's very fun to go to Princeton because it's a gorgeous town, and you know. And also, they take very good care of you.
0: <laughs> Are you one of those playwrights who's tempted to tinker with your plays?
2: years uh, later? Uh, a word or two. Not not really much more than, you know what, she needs an and in there. Or you should say no there instead of nah or something like that. Not very much more than that. Uh, but I tinker a lot in... Until they're printed, I tinker an awfully lot. And actually with 5th of July I rewrote it after it was printed. So they're Two printed versions of it. The hardback is one version and the dramatist play service version is another. Which is ki- kind of kind of destroys people when, when I say, oh, I'm sorry, you're doing the wrong version, but we're halfway through rehearsal. I don't care. You, well, know? It, it you ba- really have to do the other version.
0: Well, it bears asking what would you change? I mean, at what point was it published and why would you change it? The show was so successful.
2: Uh, it was successful after I rewrote it. Huh? Yeah, it was. Uh, we we first did it down at Circle Repertory Company, and and uh, and it was very well received. And uh, and I don't know. There was something. There was something about it that was sort of nagging at me. And uh, and uh, s- uh, someone described it to me once. I mean, I heard someone describe it to someone. It wasn't to me. And I said, "That's not the play." And so, you know, if you don't start out by saying it's about this English teacher, then you've missed it. You know, if you say it's sort of like the cherry orchard, or he's selling the the uh, house, or something like that, that's that's not it. It's about this English this, this uh, Vietnam War veteran English teacher, and uh, you have to start there, or or it's it's you you know you've missed the play. So I rewrote it. Well,
1: hmm. when you say rewrote, maybe I'm inferring this, but it sounds like major changes—not just a couple of words, but was, was uh, it major changes?
2: The second act is essentially the same, and the first act was—I—I I, I moved scenes around, and uh, uh, it, 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 it was—it was substantially rewritten. I—I I, changed—I really moved, moved scenes around a lot. I, I had a collage on my floor of scenes. And uh, cut and paste and all of that. And then uh, that was before I had a computer. Right? <laughs> and uh, uh, if, if eventually uh, eventually, it's has a lot of the same words, but they're in all different places. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tally and Son, the third part of that trilogy, or people call it a trilogy. I didn't start out to do a trilogy, but there are three plays taking place in the same house. So. uh Italian Son was originally called A Tale Told, and I rewrote that from beginning to end because I, I just wasn't happy with it. I mean, that was really rewritten. Timmy uh, used to have just a monologue to the audience, and he still talks to the audience, but that monologue has been cut. It was a real nice monologue, too. I hated to cut <laughs> it, but what the hey? Well, you
0: commented that people call it a trilogy. It sounds like you resist that term
2: for well, them. Well, because when I started out, I was going to write about five plays that took place there during various wars, and uh, and uh, I never did write the First World War. I ended up doing two from the Second and one from Vietnam, and... I, I had in, in mind to do a First World War play, and I just never did. I hmm. Something, I got an idea for some other play, and I started writing that. And then, and then Terence McNally wrote a, a, a wonderful play called I can't remember what the hell it was called. Uh, and in uh, it, a, 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 a playwright, a play. We we're at a producer's house on the opening night, and it's he's opened a an incredible bomb. And the playwright answers the phone at one point and says, "No, Lanford, she won't talk to you. She's sick of the tallies. Everybody is." And hangs up. <laughs> and I said, and it got this huge laugh. And I said, "Just a minute here. Wait. You know, come on. Hold on. I don't mind the joke uh, about me, but don't laugh at it. You know." And and I realized I was pretty sick of them too. At that moment, now I'm you know I'm actually thinking of maybe going back and writing the Whistler play, the First World War play. <laughs>
0: Well, what was the impetus for for that family? Where did where did the tallies come from? Uh,
2: strangely, they came from about three different towns that I lived in, and uh, uh, and also my imagination. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is just fabrication because I wanted to be able to talk about that class Uh, my mother was the my mother whose name is Violetta was the cleaning lady Viola in the third play Hmm. in Tally and Son and uh, and I knew I'd always get to her and I knew I'd always Mm -hmm. get her in there but uh, her story is completely different of course she did not have the illegitimate child that, that she has in the play uh, but uh, it was uh, uh, the impetus. I. I it's strangely enough, I was writing a play. I had uh, a, a friend of mine told me a story, an Eskimo myth about this brave warrior who. Whose family had an enormous hunk of 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 whale blubber, but it was frozen solid, and they couldn't they couldn't eat it. And so this giant hero went outside and farted on the on the huge block of of meat and thawed it, but it stank so bad nobody could eat it, and they starved to death. And I said, that is the most peculiar story, an actual Eskimo story, by the way, uh, <laughs> an Eskimo myth. And uh, I said, that's the weirdest damn story I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and also, what kind of story is that? It doesn't, you know, it's it's absolutely, tra- you know, in, in other words, the guy tells the story on 5th of July, and uh, and I thought of all of the ridiculous things that they say, all the trying to interrupt his story while he's telling it Uh, but at the same time I said that's the Vietnam War you know Uh, and I I started writing the next day I wrote down uh, that story and all of the things that I had thought of while he was telling me like that's the vulgarest thing I've ever heard in my life and you know I'm getting sick and that's ridiculous and it's pointless because they all died anyway I mean what is the point of this story uh so it's, you know, it's just a dead-end story. So, anyhow, I uh, I wrote that and then the play just started developing around it. And I'd worked in an advertising agency in Chicago, and the lowest of the low paced up in the art department. But And I was going to set it there. And then I said, John Lee Beatty, who's our designer... Would absolutely hate doing. Actually, now that I think of it, he'd do a great art department. You know, you can just see the skylights and the whole thing. You
0: know right but, down to the sketches. Oh my
2: God! Yes, it'd be gorgeous. And but uh, at the time, I said he'd hate me if I if I did that. So I set it in a house out in. I was renovating a house in Sag Harbor, out on Long Island, and I said I set it in a house that's being renovated. And as the play developed, I said, "This is." the midwest this is this has got to be central america this has got to be america so we're, we're talking about america throughout the play and it's got to be america and uh uh because it's it, the play was essentially the state of america and uh after the war and uh so it ended up being in the town i was born in Lebanon, missouri and uh during the rehearsal, Helen Stenborg, who was playing Aunt Sally, came up to to me and said, "Lanford, I need an image for my husband who's died. She's carrying his ashes around in a candy box. And she said, I need an image for him. Give me an image for him. And and I said, oh, well, can't you use Barnard Hughes, who was her husband? And she said, oh, God, no, he's, he's completely wrong. And uh, I said, well, maybe... Uh, I was thinking from time to time, I was thinking of Judd Hirsch. She said, Oh, that's perfect. Because she had been with Judd, uh, she'd played with Judd in, in Hotel Baltimore for a year. And, and it ran for three, but she played for a year, solid year with him. And uh, and then I got to thinking Judd Hirsch. Inter- uh, he was he was dating this girl at the time so I wrote it for Judd uh, for Judd and for the girl that he was dating unfortunately they were not no longer dating when by the time they played it together and it was a very strange scene to see <laughs> them split the second they finished rehearsal uh, uh and I wrote tally's folly there to because I, I I said what would it have been like when they were dating and when they were Romancing and why this and why that and so when I come to write I came to write Tally's Folly, I had so many answers already. I had so many facts on the story. So uh, so it was just a matter of, of of answering questions. Why did they have no children? Why did they, you know, why this, why that, why St. Louis? Why on on and on? And who was he exactly? And on. <clears throat> so it was a great fun. Well, I knew he was an accountant because she says that she says so much about him. That I had his entire character in, in Fifth of July, and I had a good image for him. It was my accountant. So, well, that so was all the out, of
0: that, out of that one suggestion, of <clears throat> out out think of, that of one think suggestion. of Jud Hirsch, right? And <laughs> came so the during,
2: second play during rehearsals of uh, during rehearsals of Fifth of July. I started writing Tally's Folly, and then I said, "I know, I I need, I know what I want to do. I want to write all of the wars because that was the the, the <clears throat> that was the Vietnam War, and and and." Uh, and I would—that uh, was rather—I uh, was fifth of July was the Vietnam War, and and uh, uh, Tally's folly would take place during the Second World War. Hmm. And I said, I want to—I want to write them all, all about this this family. And it developed. Uh, I don't know anyone like the Tally's. Uh I don't know them. I know individual members of the family, but they're not part of a family. And but I, I certainly do know. The wealthiest people in in several towns, and uh, that's what they were. They were just the wealthiest people in town.
1: Well, you mentioned that you were born in Lebanon, Missouri. You mentioned huh? your mother, Violetta, and one of your plays, Lemon Sky, is regarded as being highly autobiographical.
2: That's the only really autobiographical yeah. play. Yeah. I think
1: it would be interesting to know a little bit about your formative years, your childhood, your growing up, so we can understand where you're coming from when you write shows like Lemon Sky.
2: Oh, okay. I, I was I was I was as you said born in Lebanon, Missouri. My my. Uh, my father was a uh, cobbler, a shoe repairman, and uh, my mother worked in a uh, – uh, my mother was uh, originally a. A uh, trying to remember. She was a seamstress first or a nurse's aide. Re- originally a seamstress. Then she was uh, in Springfield during the war. She was a, a nurse's aide. Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. Mm-hmm. You know, we moved there when I was five, and my dad split – uh, when I was five, right after we moved, he split and went to California with uh, uh, went to California and uh, uh, another woman that that uh, they say he met later, uh, also from Missouri. Uh, he married her and uh, and uh, they had two sons and my two stepbrothers that I adore. And uh, I didn't see him except for one little vacation that they came. I couldn't figure out. I was probably. Twelve or so and I couldn't figure out who these two kids were these two little kids or who this woman was or anything and as I say in Lemon Sky it was we went to the zoo and it was winter time and all the animals had their winter coats on and it was a really lousy day uh, and that's all I remembered of my father really I remembered nothing before that that and drawings that were up in my grandmother's attic because he, he had been in art school for a while where did you come to theater uh that was I was going to be an artist I, I i had i had my father had artistic talent and i was the best drawer in ozark missouri that's when when my mother remarried we moved to ozark where uh, her her new husband uh worked and and so i was going to be an artist uh, it never crossed my mind to be anything other than that i was uh Checking out art books from from the library, and I knew you know I knew every artist there was at least it was in the books, and and uh, I was working uh, when I was twenty. I graduated from high school. I went. I moved to Chicago, and I was a, a year in in California, and then Chicago, uh, and I. Uh, uh, I, I was writing stories. I'm trying to remember why I was writing stories. I know why. I was writing stories to to support my art habit because I thought I was going to be a painter and I needed some sort of uh, income. So you were
0: going to fall back on being a writer. Fall Not back on being a writer. Not always strategy. Right, but <laughs>
2: exactly, right. I was going to fall back on being a short story writer. And I'd, all, the, all the while, I'd, I'd been in a couple of plays in high school. I and I it, it got me interested in plays. Plays were actually printed in magazines back then, and you know, Esquire printed uh, "Night of the Iguana" and so on. Uh, and so I was reading plays, and I knew I knew what a play looked like on the page. But I was writing stories, and I came to an idea, and I said, "Oh, you know what? This is more of a play than it is a a story." And I started writing it as a play, and by page. Two, three, I said I'm a playwright, hmm. Hmm. and that was the end of that. If anyone had asked me that day what I did, I would say I'm a playwright. I write plays.
1: Hmm. Now you, I read somewhere that you took a, a playwriting
2: course. Well, yeah, because I wrote a full, I, I wrote an entire play, and having no idea what a play was, I mean, really, when you get down to it, or certainly the mechanics of writing a play, and 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 I. Uh, and then I started a farce. I had never seen a farce, nor had I ever read a farce. I knew the word farce. And, you know, I was, as I say, I was 19 or 20. And, and so halfway through that, I, I just abandoned that and said, if I'm going to do this, I need to know what the hell I'm doing. And so I, I took a, a course, uh, Dr. Ruby, at the uh, night school at the University of Chicago. It was adult class, I was by far the youngest kid in the class, and uh, it was a brilliant class because he would say, uh, This is exposition, you know, and tell us what exposition was, and read a couple of scenes of exposition that were obvious exposition, and then they'd say, Go home and write a scene of exposition. And two days later, we would come back with our scenes, and there would be five kids from Juilliard. Art uh, uh, drama school in Chicago and they would read our scenes blind, no one knew there were 20 of us, 14 of us in the class and uh, you only knew whose scene it was because it was the one that was scooged down in her chair or <laughs> his, his chair, it's like oh my god no and, and, and uh, it was uh, it was an incredible class this is exposition, go write a scene of exposition uh and so on, this is conflict. this is so on hmm. and and that was my schooling. that was my training in in uh that and seeing every play that came to Chicago and every play and uh, reading every play I could get my hands on uh and I heard at some point I read i don't know where or when, but when I was. Eighteen or so, nineteen maybe. I I read that a certain writer wrote the common man's dialogue as as spoken, only magically turned it into uh, it was poetic. Uh, it was it was poetry when he wrote it. I said, "Oh wow!" So I. I read about three of the guy's plays and said no he doesn't I mean he doesn't do that at all it's just plain old block you know blank block dialogue like any uh, a little clumsier than any other dialogue you know he doesn't do that at all but what a cool thing to do Hmm. and so I I found I had a facility for for writing dialogue and dialogue that 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 sang in your in your mouth. In, the, in the, for I, I was also I was writing for actors, and because I just adored actors, and 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 uh, and I always have, and so I wanted them to say wonderful things, and, uh, and 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 you know that hints the way I write. You know. So did you get produced in Chicago? No that believe it or not with all the incredible theater activity there is now in Chicago there was not a damn place in Chicago in 1960 beep uh, uh, to even think about getting a new play done Second City was there and of course they did sketches and comedy uh, Mike Nichols Elaine May uh, and a bunch of other people uh, I mean you know Barbara Harris and a hundred other people Severin Darden uh, that was that was sketch comedy, and there was a place that opened doing uh, ru- routines called the Happy Medium. But that was comedy, hmm. and that was it. And the others were were places where traveling company theaters, where traveling theater, you know, touring theater companies came in. Uh, so I saw everything that came to town, but that was it.
1: So where did you first get produced, and how did that come about? if it wasn't um, Chicago.
2: Oh no. Where, no. Where, where uh, was it? uh I was I was living with uh well, there were five of us living together in this in this big apartment that we couldn't afford and we thought maybe the mafia owned it so we decided we really had to move quick. Mm-hmm. And so we came to New York because one was an actor and and one was a hotel manager and or intended to be and I was was a playwright, right? So it was the logical thing was to come to New York. We came to New York with seven dollars among the three of us, and lived in Central Park for a couple of nights, and had one phone number of someone that I thought had come to Chicago. I uh, had come from Chicago to New York, and that's how we got a foothold in New York. But, uh, it, but, yeah, I, it, it was. Where was I first produced? Uh, I, someone at some point, I, uh, cruising on, on, on West End, uh, not West End, uh, Central Park West, uh, when I, I hadn't been here more than three or four months. And, and I ran into this guy, and we were talking, and he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm a playwright. And he says, oh, do you know the Cafe Chino? I said, never heard of it. And he said, oh, you've got to go down there. It's terrific. And so a couple well, where of days. Where was
1: that? Down Lower Manhattan, in the village. Or? In the
2: village, right? And uh, so a couple of days, he gave gave me the address, uh, thirty three, I think, thirty Cornelia Street. It's Poe Restaurant now, <laughs> and uh, I hope they still call it Poe. Uh, and uh, uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't go down there. Michael Powell went, who was one of the guys who came to New York with me. It's oh, you got to go down there. It's terrific. So I went down. My first experience with Ionesco, for some reason, was one of the playwrights I'd never read, and uh, of course they pirated the the productions they had in the in the window. Some completely different play advertised, and what they were doing was Ionesco's A Lesson, and uh, it was it it set about twenty five people, maybe thirty if you really crowded in, and it got very hot because they shut all the doors and there was no ventilation and they never did a play more longer than about 40 minutes because it got too hot in there with the with stage lights and and all of that and it was a very damn small room and and so we uh i loved it i met joe chino and he said what's your sign and i <laughs> said oh god and i said i'm in aries with aries rising and he said oh forgot the which what I, He had this entire language I never really understood. I was there for three years. I had no idea what he was saying at the time. Ella was, was from Ella Fitzgerald who was their favorite singer and it became the noun. It was the only noun they used. Take the Ella and put it on the Ella or take the Ella off the Ella and put it on the Ella uh, and they knew what they were saying but I didn't know what the hell they were talking about half the time and uh, he said send me something and I'm I, I Bring Me Something, and I brought him uh, Home Free, one-act play that I'd written in New York, completely different from anything I'd written. I, I, New York changed me completely. It was astonishing what happened. When I came to New York, walking under the lights of the—there used to be lights under the marquees of the Broadway theaters, just like in the movies— For some reason, I don't think they have them anymore, but they used to be flooded with lights, so it was very warm in the wintertime walking under those lights. And I was like a chicken in an incubator. It was just, oh, it was heaven. And the whole town, the languages I'd never heard before and still don't know what the hell they were. And and I've said my shoulders lowered four inches. I'd been incredibly tense all my life and didn't know it. And I relaxed for the first time in my life in New York. It was it was just an astonishing place. And then when I found the Café Chino, I moved, we moved, the three of us moved down to below 14th Street. And I didn't go above 14th Street for the next probably six years. Uh, and we just stayed down there. And there was La Mama on one... I mean, La Mama started, we helped start it. It was one of the first plays that was done there was when we moved home free from to Chino to La Mama one of the only times that plays moved back and forth so anyway
0: mm. well this was an era of enormous activity and Chino oh, yeah. was one of the centers of it but certainly for you it seemed the show that really started to put you on the map was in 1965 Bomb and Gilead which was a La Mama show. That was at La Mama. Yeah. A huge show. And I'm wondering, you know, you, you tackled something so enormous that has a cast of something like 29 or 36, so? Oh, I gosh. Maybe I, maybe I saw a cut version. 35. I don't know. But, um, you know, what was the experience of mounting such a sprawling, enormous piece mm, in don't... what were obviously
2: shoestring circumstances? Don't... The original the original draft had fifty five characters mm. in it but I didn't I was th- I thought I was writing a novel in the form of a in the form of a play and then uh when I thought of the the monologue that begins the second act I said ooh you know what if I end the play if I end here in 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 the middle it becomes two and I've written my first full length play hmm. and and so I said okay it's a play and uh I was just so thrilled and excited and puzzled and uh, astonished by New York that, the, and no longer terrified for some reason. I was terrified when I came on a vacation once. It scared me to death. I went back to New York. I said, I, I went back from New York to Chicago and said, I've got to grow a tough hide. I didn't know what that meant, but I prepared myself for New York. And when I came, it was just heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was on the in Needle Park, it was Upper West Side, and uh, back then in the early sixties, it was uh, it was Drug City. It was uh, uh, Needle Park meant needle, and the apartment that the three of us got, you had to be careful walking to the John, which was down the hall, because you would step on a needle. Hmm. I looked out the window once from the John, and there were like eleven needles lined up on the window hmm. outside. The place it was it was drug city and uh so i was fascinated by all of that it was just just amazing uh and so i questioned everyone i encountered i spent all my nights in a restaurant down an all-night rest coffee shop downstairs which was balm and gilead which was where all the hustlers and hoodlums and and everything hang out the attics and the uh, the, the addicts and the and the pushers and the everything, uh, the horrors and so on and and I just loved them all and 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 started writing down everything I heard, and that's how Baum and Gilead started. I was just writing down this foreign language, and uh, and then it started. Of course, in no time at all, it started forming into a play. Fix and uh, Fick is this wild guy, and and in the play or this this wild, drunken, I don't know, drugged-out guy, and I got off the subway at 72nd Street, I believe it was, and walked to 76 in the driving rain, and Fick was this little, tiny drug addict. Uh, He was probably about 25, but he was a tiny guy and just so high on, on heroin, and he was running I was rushing like crazy, and he was running along beside me Saying oh, you know, if I had a friend if i i i I don't have any friends, but I have a friend who'd walk and see these guys just beat me up terrible, and if I had a friend, then you know that was walking along with me you know and a buddy like and and you know someone like that, like maybe you or someone like that, then you know then they'd be afraid to beat me up because it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be just me you know because I'm little and I'm really high right now, and everything but and on and on and on, and I got to my the hotel hotel rooming house uh door, and I said i'm sorry but they won't let me take anyone upstairs, and I have to say goodnight, and I'm soaking wet. And I, and I hadn't said much of anything to him except that. And I said, oh, that poor, poor bastard. Well, the least I can do is write down. I wrote down every word he said, and that's fixed part scattered throughout the play. Yeah. And he ends the first act, you know, with... You know, say, you know, it wouldn't have to be you. You know, it could be, I mean, you know, you, you get someone, boy, you could do anything. Hmm. And it's the first act.
1: Well, Bomb and Gilead was 1965. In yeah. that In the late 60s. That was a
2: smash. I mean, it was, you know, we only ran uh, nine performances, I think, but they were lined up around the block by the second performance. And hmm. Ellen was terrified Ellen that the fire stewart. Ellen Stewart who ran the Cafe La Mama was terrified that the fire stewart was come by because she let in mm-hmm. many, many, too many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, at the end of the sixties, two important things happened. One of which was you and several other people founded Circle Rep, and then one of your shows was produced there, Lemon Sky, which when they say write of the things you know about, that's your autobiographical show, Lemon Sky. That's so the you kind of have to talk about the two together, founding Circle Rep and then Lemon Sky being produced there.
2: Well, uh, Marshall Mason directed Balm and Gilead*, and it changed my life. Just, just with so many characters, just people coming in to, to audition. We had to audition everyone that he could, e- had ever heard of, and I had ever heard of, and our friends had ever heard of. And just understanding by what, what he was asking them to do, because he was a very he was a really good director, and he had. You know, he directed off Broadway, and he had a degree in directing. For God's sakes, and I, I learned more. I think I learned more during those auditions than I learned than I could have learned in school in a full year. I'm sure. I learned what acting was, and what, and also I learned that Marshall was understood my play better than anyone could possibly understand it as well as I did. He knew things about that play that I thought were hidden. I thought were so secret. And uh, I had told uh, Michael Powell, one of my roommates, uh, I said, this this play is really about economics. And the first thing Marshall said is this play could take place on Wall Street, really. And I thought that was secret. I thought, you know, no one knew that. And so Marshall has been my director ever since. the
0: The choice to found a theater company together. That
2: was... My idea, and he said no. He said, I'm no, no, I don't want to do that. My god, that's much too much work. And then, because and I wanted to keep all those people from Balm and Gilead together, and uh, and I had seen the hostage was one of the really important experiences in my life that I'd seen in Chicago. And I said, Joan Littlewood has a company in England, and, and she got the hostage out of that. Now, come on. And he said, Yeah, 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 I'm not interested. And in in order to do a play in London, they would invite a theater company over. He wanted to do play, two plays of mine in London, Home Free and Madness of Lady Bright. And uh, and so he, ha- he had to pretend that we had a theater company and called American <laughs> Theater Project. No one had ever heard of it because there never was such a thing. And when we came back, he said, okay, all right, you know, let's start Circle rep And... You know, we invited everyone we'd ever heard of, and and they all came. And the ones that stick stuck around became members of the company, hmm. such as, uh, oh, a bunch of people: Chris Reeve, Jeff Daniels, on and on and on. I mean, really, Swoozy Kurtz. It it it. You know, people can chat a feral, People you've heard of. People you haven't. Trinch Catafarel came up from West Virginia she had heard about the the theater she'd never done any theater i i don't believe anywhere except and her all of her learning was at Circle rep Brad Duruff who she called also from West Virginia who who she said i found our i found where we belong come up come up to New York and and you know and on and on Bill Hurt
1: and then Lemon Sky was produced there that was
2: no, Lemon Sky was not done there. We didn't have a mat. No, we could would would not cast outside the company, uh-huh. and and Lemon Sky had a father that we did not have. Uh-huh. So Lemon Sky was first done at Buffalo Studio Arena, and came to, and and came to New York off Broadway and bombed just massively, got rave reviews, and no one came. It was uh, got reviews. You you know you write in the bathtub, and now you, know. you hear
0: a cast with Charles Durning and Christopher Walken, and you yeah. say, "My
2: God, that yeah. bombed!" Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it got it got wonderful reviews, but they but, managed to say, uh, "It's about the generation gap," and it's not, of course. But that was the that was the talk then, hmm. and you couldn't say that was 5 days after you could po- after everyone was sick of ever hearing the phrase generation gap hmm. and so no one came
0: well let's jump to another big play and a big big success hotel baltimore
2: well that was written for the company when we got when i finally settled into the company and we finally had a company we had done i managed to 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 develop an incredible writers block and uh for a year i couldn't do anything so i just worked around the theaters you know uh helping build the risers for you know for the helping build the audience platforms and and uh doing everything there taking tickets and so on and i i I, they they did three one-act plays of mine that i'd written previously and uh I said, well, the next logical thing is to do a full-length play written for the company, which is what the whole idea of the company had been, you know, having writers in it and directors and actors. Come on, you know, write for the company. And I wanted to do that, and but I was I was hung up on trying to write this dumb historical piece from 1770— Exactly, it was just so stupid, and and it it was, and I didn't trust my motive. I didn't know why I was writing it, and and I didn't believe in it, and and I was laboring. I tried it as a minstrel show, I tried it as a musical, I tried it as a straight play, as a comedy, as and on and on. It nothing worked, and Marshall and I were painting the risers one day in the in the. Uh, at the, at the theater and running to the front every like 15 minutes so we could open the balcony door of the of the front of the theater out looked out on Broadway and get some air because apparently paint has the same thing as sniffing I've never sniffed glue but it must be the same effect because we were really <laughs> dizzy we were just giddy and of course in that neighborhood at that it was a business neighborhood and at that hour which three in the morning probably you can turn we had a great sound system which is about the only thing we had at the original circle rep uh we had pretty good lights and a great sound system and marshall and i and everyone chipped in to build the sets so they weren't much uh we could blast the blast the speakers up as loud as they wanted to go and no one could, would complain and uh, City of New Orleans came on riding on the City of New Orleans, you know. mm-hmm. and uh, and I said, God, I am such a train freak. I would love. I've been thinking about writing a play about the trains, you know, and and how rotten it is that they've just deteriorated into into a joke. I the last time I had gone down to Florida, I had been seven and a half hours late. And that's unheard of. That's ridiculous on a on a you know. So anyway, I I said, Well, Lanford, why don't you write that instead of that piece of crap that you've been trying to write for the last three years or it'd been a year really. And so the next day I started to say, Okay, what what would it be like? And I started with the hotel lobby of this crappy place that we lived in. It wasn't a hotel; it was a rooming house. But every morning, uh, I would usually c- uh, come in at about six o'clock, and in the morning, and because uh, I'm a, a real night owl and uh, and the guy would be the guy that we'd sit down there and talk with, that, who, who ran the thing would be plugging in the uh, about five people and saying it's six o'clock, and as soon as I answered, he'd turn it unplugged them. And just sat there saying, it's 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and unplugging when they answered. And uh, and so I started with that, only it was 7 o'clock. But, and, you know, uh, I started with, it's 7 o'clock, it's 7 o'clock, it's 7 o'clock. And how do you do that, which is what I'd ask him. You, know, you plug everyone in, and then when they answer, you unplug them, right? And you just keep ringing all the numbers until until everyone that's plugged in, you just ring one ring and everyone that's plugged in, it rings their phone. And when they answer, the light goes on and they unplug it. And then, uh, and so I started there and I assumed that the play was going to be all over the place. Like bomb and Gilead was going to go out on the street. It was going to go up into the rooms of the, of the hotel. It was going to be all over the place. And, uh, By God, we just stayed right there in that damn hotel, a lobby. You know, it just, people kept coming in. And when I was 40 pages into the thing, I said, I have a feeling I'm stuck with a one set play, you know, and we're not going to be collaging. We're not going to go all over the place at all. So, but I was writing for specific people in in the theater company. And I can't tell you what a difference it makes to, uh, you can imagine you write something and in your mind you hear the voice that of of a character you see the more or less the shape of the character but when you're writing for a specific person you hear their voice and you see their body but when you're writing not for a specific person and you're in auditions that's not the voice you imagined that's an interesting voice, but it's not what you imagined that's not the shape that's or he's much too good looking or he's not you know not nearly it and when you're writing for someone, the second they open their mouth it's a voice that you've heard for the last six months, hmm. and it's the the body and the gestures that, that you knew that they would do and Of course, immediately, I was challenging them to do the actors to do something i hadn't seen them do. And that was the fun part. Rather than take advantage of something I knew they could do in their sleep, uh, uh, challenge someone who's always very dramatic to to uh, to be the funniest person in the play, and and so on. And and so I was writing for for the actors in the company, and it turned out with sixteen actors, we struck one eventually because he just had one line.
1: But you were the creator. Couldn't you make it go outside the hotel if you wanted to? You said you were stuck in the hotel.
2: I was stuck. No, they talk to you and they come in the and characters. they Yeah, the uh. characters they talk to you and they do what they damn well please and you, <laughs> you have very little control well, over some of it sometimes. Hmm. What you control is the theme and the arc, but you know, that they start talking and and you're stuck with where they want to be, you know, and they won't have any they wouldn't have any part of going upstairs. They wanted to hang out in the lobby.
1: And do you, in your mind, have any um, uh, thoughts as to how does this get staged? If, in other words, if you went upstairs outside, do you need a different set? Do you need multiple sets as opposed to a single set? Does that ever enter into it? Or do you just not in, worry in, about in that? In,
2: in *Bomb and, Gile- yeah, and Gilead*, I knew that. Yeah, I, I knew that. That uh, when we went to the, I knew that when we went to the hotel. Uh, we we left the coffee shop and went to the girls' hotel room. I wanted everyone in the coffee shop to be walking out of the hotel or coming into the hotel and suddenly they all have their back to you and it's a solid wall of backs with a ga- gap in the middle and the people are walking down this wall of backs talking to the couple and they go into the, the gap in the middle into the hotel and Dopey, I believe, well, no, it was Rake, A character in the play turns around and has a monologue to the audience about something completely irrelevant. And then they all go off somewhere and we're in their in her room. And and, uh, her room is just a bed that's been put that's been put in the middle of the cafe. Mm -hmm. We wanted that because I knew he was going to like run off. At the end of that scene, he goes, oh, my God, I forgot all about something. And he runs off and she is in her, a bra and, and half slip and standing in the, essentially in the middle of the cafe as people start coming into the cafe. And and, and uh, I knew I wanted that image. And someone like five people whisk the mattress off and and she is standing you know, and a couple of people st- start looking at her like who are you standing in the middle of the cafe with in your underwear you know. and <laughs> and eventually she walks off em- embarrassed or whatever you know mm. so I, I knew that was going to happen so sometimes you see exactly the way you want it staged and sometimes i have no idea 5th <laughs> of uh, was it 5th of July uh the, 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 the mound builders i had very little idea of of where people were or what they were doing or or you know if we were inside or outside or on the porch or the, you know let let the set designer worry about it. You get more confident about about your partners. You know the set designer is going to come up with something much better than you know than I could say go out on the porch. But you know if if I really need it, yes. In Fifth of July, I really needed I really needed it. He gave me a porch and mound builders. I had no idea there was going to be a porch in that set.
0: Well, Hot o Baltimore was such a success, something like 1,100 performances. Yeah, it, it
2: sort of broke the record it, for... We didn't say sort of break, break the record. It broke the record for a straight play hmm. off-Broadway. It ran 1,300-something wow. performances.
0: And even spawned a short-lived TV series. A
2: very short-lived TV series, yeah.
0: Did you have much to do with that?
2: I had nothing to do with it. They had... A friend of mine has a sign that was in the writers' room. Is this what Lanford Wilson had in mind? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I became that wonderful producer. If you could remember his name, I I, I don't. There's the the Norman, best television. What Norman Lear? Norman Lear. Thank you. Uh, it, it was Norman Lear's just only flop. Mm-hmm. He just had the best the best series in in the world and it just it just it just flopped hmm. and it's too bad because they pay you almost nothing the first year and the second year they give you quite a bit of money and the third year they give you a great deal of money and you get mon- money for the first year and the second year the fourth year they give you money for the first, second, and third year, and then just dump money on you until you say, "Stop! I can't stand it anymore." <laughs> but you didn't get there. I didn't get past the first. <laughs> I didn't pass the first thirteen performances. No, we talked. Ever Conchetta <laughs> Farrow became a star from from that because she was the only one from the company to, to remain in the in the show. Mm-hmm. They had to have her.
0: Mm-hmm. We talked at the beginning about the tally plays, so I want to skip ahead, and I saw an interesting comment that in some ways you felt the tally plays had taken you not in the direction you thought you wanted to go, and so you began Burn This almost as a reaction to the tally
2: plays. Is that true? Well, yes, and the tally plays and Serenading Louie and the Suburban plays, and I said, I'm just getting too... Damn suburban, you know. I don't understand it at all. Why? Why? How I got so, so well? There's a triple murder in 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 Serenading Louis, but nevertheless, I thought I was getting too suburban, and and John Malkovich came to New York with his his Chicago production with the Steppenwolf Company of *Bomb and Gilead.
0: Which was such a success in in its run, both in Chicago and then in circle Rep.
2: And then at Circle Rep, we, we used half-Circle Rep and half-Steppenwolf. Half, uh, half, uh, and for those who don't remember that production, Malkovich
0: directed Gary Sinise, Laurie Metcalf, among others, right. really introduced to Glenn New that. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: it was just dynamite. And... Uh, and just the experience of seeing that again I said oh my god the energy in that play how did I ever have so much energy and where did I ever get so damn suburban I don't know how the hell that happened to me and of course it wasn't really true but I felt that and so I wrote uh a no, there's a novel I'd read called uh, Howard's End, and and it begins. One may as well begin with Emily or whatever her name is. Letters, and and she says, "Oh God, I hate it here. It's just awful. <clears throat> the food is terrible. It's uh, they're you know they think they're being polite, but they hate me. And, and it, I can't even paraphrase what it says. She gets and says, "Oh, I understand. Aunt so and so is coming, coming. Poor you. I'm glad I'm here in spite of everything. Burn this. Uh, Was the little letter." So I wrote, I, I, and then there were about five letters in a row and they all in burn this. And, uh, so at the top of every page I wrote burn this because I wanted to, I said, tell things that you don't want anyone to know about, tell secrets, you know, behind, you know, you, you know, your best friend doesn't know this about you. You know, um uh, uh, confessionals, uh. It just you know gets. I was reading every far out book. I usually can't read anything when I'm writing, and I was I was reading. uh, I won't won't tell you what, but I was read. I was reading every far out book I could possibly think of, Uh, and uh, at at the time, and of course, I'm still just a suburb. You know, this just this ordinary old Missouri kid. So it's not near the explosive. Thing that I thought maybe I would write but at least in the character of Pale I got some of that in there you know I, I, I wanted it to be uh, a, a dangerous play and at the same time I said you know what this is going to be a love story and uh, but it's a very different life. it's going to be the obverse of Tally's Folly hmm. and uh, the opposite side and uh, and uh, I, I got it finished had no title at all but uh, and Marshall said I just assumed you were going to call it burn this and I said oh my god no you realize what I'd be setting myself up for the uh, the, the, the headline right oh, oh my god yes it'd be ridiculous I'd be leaving, leaving myself so incredibly vulnerable and Marshall said I thought that was the point and I said you son of a bitch and you know it was called burn this and it would it had been burned this all along you know that was that was the whole point hmm. so you know it was it uh, i told malkovich i think i'm writing a part for you and he said i think i would like to read it
1: hmm. do you sit around at night thinking what can i work on next or do these ideas just pop into your head are these things that have been in you for years that just come to the surface how how do you get your, your-
2: very often they come from nowhere uh-huh. I uh, the mound builders. I suddenly had had, had a, a, a little vision of, of 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 this woman says to her husband, w- w- "Tell me about the mound builders. What are the mound builders?" And he says, "It's it's this motel out on Highway 66." And she said, "No, come on, he says, it's a mound. It's that the Indians. You know, years and years and years ago, the ancient Indians built mounds for burial or something. Who knows what? And they're all over the place up there." And she says, "Well, then, why is someone dickering with them at night?" And, Ooh. and another one was two people or two women are in the, are in a screened-in porch somewhere that's not their own house, and and one is pregnant and doing exercises, and and a, a girl, a, a baby girl, a ten-year, twelve-year-old, screams, wakes up with a nightmare, and the other woman gets up and says, "It's okay, honey, safe from harm," and she goes off then the one the pregnant one who's doing exercises says oh uncle i'm i'm going to bed too and they turn off all the lights and the screen and porch becomes transparent and you see a lake with the moon shining on it and all of the night sounds and uh, and a twig breaks and suddenly all the night sounds shut up you know all the crickets shut up and the owls are listening and everything there's something out there that's going to get you you know and that was the image of, of mound builders and i knew that something was inside the people who were there and i had no idea who they were i wrote two-thirds of the play without knowing who they were or what the, why they were down there and, and and why why they kept talking about the mounds and and uh, and suddenly halfway through i say oh god damn it i'm They're archaeologists. And I do not know shit about archaeology, nothing. (laughs) And so I said, told Marshall, I'm sorry, we're going to have to wait on this one because I've got to read about archaeology. And I read doctoral dissertations. I went to, I talked to a a professor of archaeology and he said the best thing to do is read doctoral dissertations rather uh, rather than books. As we draw to a
0: close as you are looking at Tally's Folly in Princeton as you are looking at the shows at Juilliard School um are there things now that you still see that you want to take on that you haven't gotten to do in the many plays these that you've written or is it about staying within the family of plays that
2: you've created i have been i have been whipping myself for five years uh for five for six ever since i I got sober about uh six years ago i became an absolute raging alcoholic and and went into rehab and all of that and uh and since I come out I have not been able to write and I don't know why because I didn't I didn't drink and I didn't write uh, I wasn't drinking when I was writing Hmm. I was the Protestant ethic right you you write all day and then you celebrate and have a couple of drinks you know only I went on into the night with it one of those fortunate or unfortunate drunks that never got a hangover and never had a headache and never threw up you know just a raging drunk Uh, all 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 conveniently in your own apartment right, <laughs> or house and out in sag Harbor, hmm. as it were anyhow i have been beating my head against the wall saying there is more there is more there is more and i know it's there it's just it just hasn't it just hasn't appeared you know but fortunately you have friends jeff daniels uh asked me to write a play for his company the purple rose theater in michigan purple rose way to go yeah and uh great company based on circle rep and so i went out there five or six times to familiarize myself with the company and came back and said unfortunately i have nothing to write about you know and i haven't had an idea and and this was before i got sober uh i haven't had an idea and God knows how long, and suddenly I saw a book on my shelf that was called "Playing Joan," and I went, "Oh my God, I was going to write a play about what would it what would it do to a, a a nice little very good actress to join the community theater and get the part of Joan, and what would it do to the nice little town that she lived in you know if if she if she changed the way I think you could." And then I read – then I saw a book called Playing Joan uh, re- in, uh, reviewed and said, damn it, someone's already thought of this. You know, <laughs> fuck. And But as it turned out, I bought the book and no, uh, it was just interviews with people who had played Joan, period. No, and not one of them had a single experience outside outside the rehearsal room or on stage. So I said, hey – this has not been done after all and immediately forgot the entire idea but then when I saw four years later when I saw that on the shelf said I certainly do have an idea for a play you know and and wrote Book of Days in just uh, in, in a very short while mm-hmm. for the company we had a wonderful uh, we had a wonderful routine I would send him email by the, by this time now I would email him about ten pages he would videotape it and and uh, send it back to him, send the tape back to me, uh, a videotape the actors reading that I was writing for, writing for specific actors again in their company, uh, and, and he would send it back uh, to me. And, and, and So then by then I'd have 15 pages and send that to him, and, and that's the way we wrote it, which is very similar to the way we worked in, in, uh, at Circle Rep.
1: Well, you say you wrote that in a very short while. This hour has gone past in a very short while. We, so nice. we have yes. run through the entire thing. Let me just mention again that your play, Tally's Folly, is running in revival now at the MacArthur Theater in Princeton and
0: Lanford. Thanks so much for being with us today on
1: Downstage Center.
2: Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Landford, For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.